this is Roger Green, host of the podcast still known as Surfing the National Tsunami. Today we are offering six conversations from episode 41, our review of last week's FDA workshop on NITs, with two conversations from each of our three interviews with key participants in the event. This final conversation starts with Louise Campbell expressing her surprise that there is not more data today on MRE. She goes on to ask whether it is appropriate to go forward with biopsy given its fatality rate, and whether it is fair to ask patients to assume a life-threatening outcome simply to join a clinical trial. Veronica agrees and notes that we probably have a large volume of liver from past biopsies, and that our artificial intelligence machine learning is a way to make better value from what she describes as that large plate of chopped liver. She also notes the general dynamic that the first approach to a problem is accepted more easily, but that the second and subsequent approaches need to prove far superior outcomes to replace an incumbent. I suggest that patient advocates might push harder to replace biopsy based on the level of medical risk associated with simply undergoing the test. Veronica responds that there's significant time burden for patients and separately. Notes that she feels patients should have been included in the session. I asked Veronica how she felt about airing the past controversy about MIFA versus mass and asked whether there were other places she noticed where she felt scientists disagreed so openly. She says there were, and also notes that all speakers qualified their comments with, we need more data. I asked Veronica where she anticipates progress going forward, and she goes back to the biomarker qualification process, one drug at a time, to ask whether and how quickly we can progress on the question of what is a reasonable predictor of outcome, which might change the definition of the process. She raises a couple of other issues, and in closing, notes what she considers the most important point, that FDA has opened the door very formally and very wide to this set of issues. This two-day FDA workshop on NITs was a seminal event in the development of NASH drugs and diagnostics. The Tsunami team was delighted to attend and thoroughly enjoyed these three conversations with leading participants. I anticipate you might as well, so just uh, sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise, you have a question or thought about that? Was there anything that surprised you that's worthy of uh, sharing with Veronica? Louise Campbell. Yeah, there was something that surprised me. The lack of data on MRE for the majority of the outputs. And I think it was Dr. Cyrillin who presented that work. And he couldn't advocate for MRE in a number of areas, but also the lack of data that was available. So we talk about MRE being very prognostic in various areas, and we, we've talked about it on the podcast, but I wasn't aware that there was so much lack of data until that uh, presentation. So that was my big surprise of the weekend. I echo Veronica's discussion there on the FDA calling the meeting, because for me, what it raises is, yes, biopsy is a surrogate, but I think Professor Banerjee also was very clear that that surrogate that we use as gold standard comes with a 2.3 ratio of problems, including death. So we are choosing to use a surrogate that the FDA approved that has death as a related outcome. How many other clinical trials require such extreme outcomes to prove the outcome of your drug. I don't think there's very many when we now have, and I think this was the strength of the panel that you chaired, we have as much evidence, if not more, to prove a panel of NITs that do not put patients at risk. And to me, that would be the concern is that can we go forward with a life-threatening outcome? come required for clinical trials. Is that something I would put myself at? No. 
but we are asking patients to do that. Veronica Miller. Right, right, right. And certainly if I was asked to give a liver biopsy, I would think about it very carefully because I'm I'm not very brave when it comes to having big needles sticking into me. Yes, th- that was that was a good point to have mentioned. I know we've often been very cavalier about a biopsy. I remember in the hepatitis C days where people with hemophilia were talking about their needs in a clinical trial and the need for a biopsy. And some people were very cavalier and say, oh, it's no problem. You know, uh, we can manage the risk. And, you know, especially when you have somebody with hemophilia and you want to take a chunk of liver out of there. So I think that is a problem. I just wanted to say one thing, Louise, because I'm really a stickler for the language here. So the FDA has not approved the histology uh, as, as, as an endpoint. The FDA is accepting it as a reasonably likely predictor. So the word approved when, when we talk about regulatory agencies sort of carries, uh, carries different weight. You know, you're fully right. And I often, I've, I've put the challenge to people that if we could measure the volume of one liver biopsy, you know, it's measurable. It's, it's like a piece of pencil lead, right? And we, when we look at all the clinical trials and all the biopsies, you know, how big a plate of chopped liver basically would we have, right? We're taking a lot of liver and looking at it. And, and this is the part also that I am really, you know, myself personally and, and many people in the liver forum are, are pushing that if we are going to take chunks of liver out of people, then let at least let us analyze it as best as we can and get the most information out of there. So it might take a while to fully understand AI, ML, and how that applies to liver versus tumors, etc. But at least let's let's initiate that effort to really understand what are we looking at, something beyond the scale of zero to four. If we're still doing biopsies, let's at least learn more from them. It's something that we simply owe the patients. I don't have to list all the reasons why that is a problem, but that's always what happens is sort of the first thing gets grandfathered in and then everything else needs to be measured against that. And technology often advances so fast. Um, we saw that, for example, with sequencing of genes. You know, the, the old Sanger method was was what was grandfathered in and then we had deep sequencing. And then it was like, how do you prove that deep sequencing gives you the same result as a Sanger sequencing? So we're always going to be trying to take something new and understand it in the context of what we have already been using. And that's just somehow how this works. It's a challenge to keep up with technology from from a regulatory uh, viewpoint. So listening to that last exchange, I had a thought that had not quite struck me before, which is that the patient advocates, who are the people who really should be talking about the 2.4% uh, significant injury injury rate and, and the idea of death rates, have been a little too empathic around this issue and not data-driven enough. That if you look at the professional critiques or the academic critiques of biopsy, it's mostly about reliability and all that other stuff, which is really important. I mean, you know, um, when we started this podcast, I wanted to describe it, and this is four years ago, I wanted to call this the pyrite standard, and Stephen wouldn't let me do that. But I think it really is a pyrite standard, and I think that's the, the fairest way to describe it. That said, the real issue is that if you put a drug in front of the FDA for a long-term chronic disease, limited levels of short-term mortality, with this level of risk in the testing 
testing method. I don't know that they would accept it. So I get your point about grandfathering, but I also suspect that the advocates haven't made a strong enough case on this yet. That, I think, could very well be. And the data about that 2.3%, I, I have not looked at that. I, I can't speak to that specifically. I know it was mentioned. But certainly, I can imagine that, first of all, the unpleasantness of it. Also, the social burden. I mean, how much time do you have to take off work or not be babysitting or not, you know, babysit your own kids? I mean, how much time do you have to take away from your daily life to just go through that procedure? That in itself is a burden, you know, certainly the risk associated with it. So I can't really speak to the level of risk, but um, certainly it would be very nice to do away. It would have been nice also to have the patient voice in here then to make that point. But uh, the decision was made to really focus on the data at this time. But I think, you know, patients should have a voice to also say this is not acceptable to us. If, if that's how they feel. I'm not telling patients what they should say. Just if, if that's how they feel, they should they should have the voice to say that. We all talk to enough patients that we have a sense as to how that conversation would come out. I want to ask you about one specific point that struck me, and then, and then I want to go to closing question. One of the few things that really made me wince, and this was in Dr. Serlin's presentation, was his qualified but reasonably strong support of the idea that MIFIB probably is a better test than MAST. And what it reminded me of actually was the London session in 2022 when Rohit presented those results, made a, made a version of that claim, and then um, uh, Mazin and Laurent kind of shot it out of the sky. I didn't think it was necessarily a good idea to air that piece of laundry yesterday if there were a way to avoid it. I don't know that there was. People don't collaborate on their work, and there are two schools of thought on this. But that was one place where it became clear to me that if I were the agency, I would throw up my hands and say, boy, I need a lot more data before I step into this. Yeah, there were many, many instances of that, of where it's there, the data was presented, but I think most of the speakers also kept saying Everybody. more data is needed, more data is needed, but but this is, and I think Claude Serlin also made it very clear that, you know, he would talk about what he knew as facts, or at least what he knew, and, and when, when he was expressing his own opinion. But I think overall, the balance, um, you know, amongst all the speakers came through. Did, did you hear any other dynamics where if you're the regulator, you would walk away and go, okay, this this is really unsettled, even by, not, not by regulator standards, but even by scientific standards? And I, I think regulator standards are tougher and probably have to be, but... Yeah, maybe some of the discussion around, is it inflammation or is it fibrosis? Again, I thought just saying, well, in the end, it's the outcome that's associated with it and inflammation and fibrosis are so intertwined again. Um, you know, there, there were a couple of instances like that where I thought, well, we're kind of getting lost in the weeds and are forgetting the, you know, the thread of the conversation. From your perspective, and I think your perspective is really unique because of the forum and the work you do and your mission, what impact do you see this having to the degree that you're confident you can qualify it over, say, the next year and then over the longer term? Understanding that this is this is a, this is a ripple that will grow over time. Um, let's see if we can time the growth and the direction in which it's going to ripple a little bit. Right. So again, to, to use the, the terminology, so the qualification process is this biomarker qualification program that is lengthy, arduous, intensive, etc. that that many people are are in. And the problem with that actually is that it's sort of one biomarker at a time and one context of use at a time. So that will follow the programs and the program's timelines. Where I would really like to see some change is in this area of what is reasonably likely to predict, which is a 
step before that, before we qualify something, and pulling together as a field to really get that clinical endpoint data through collaboration, etc. Because no one can do that on their own, you know, to come up with the clinical endpoints. The other area here where there's a lot of progress in the field generally is how we do we then bring real world data and observational studies in into the picture as well to help nail some of these these things. And one of the speakers talked about hepatitis C and based on epidemiologic data, the regulators said it's reasonably likely that the viral load would predict the clinical endpoint. It's so different with the virus, you know, and it's the same division that the first circuit in that way was HIV viral load. So it was sort of a natural progression from that. And I don't think anyone was surprised that the FDA came. But HCV viral load did not go through a biomarker qualification program. It was just accepted to be reasonably likely and then validated to actually predict through through the studies that were done. The ripples that I see or, or the little, you know, snowball coming down is really that kind of movement to what can we agree as a field? What is a reasonably likely predictor, you know, diagnostic predictor, prognostic, and especially the surrogate to predict clinical events? As we learn more and more about, you know, the whole collagen, for example, as we get, as we learn more and more detail about what happens in the fibrotic process and really understand how that then could affect, you know, long-term outcomes. And of course, the long-term safety of the drugs has to be documented as well because fibrosis does play a major physiologic role. And all of us, if we didn't have fibrosis, we wouldn't have wound healing, for example. We need to look at, in the end, also at the long-term and also the strategy of how we use these drugs in combination. So a lot more room for discussion, but I think the really encouraging thing is that the agency has opened the door for this discussion. So let's look at it. Uh, they've opened the door very formally because this was a very formal setup. It was coordinated and run and sponsored by the agency. Last I heard a couple of days before, they said they had over 2,000 people registered, and I'm sure there were even more. It's a big open door. We can keep walking through it. Louise, before we bid adieu to Veronica, do you have a question for her? Then I have a very, very quick closing question. I think that kind of was the closing question. So. Nope. I think she summed it up beautifully. Let's put a doorstop in the door from closing and just keep it going in the right direction. Right. We all keep walking through the door and we will get there together. And, and, and pushing on the snowball, as it were, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a scary one, right? We don't want to have an avalanche come down on us, but... No, and we don't want global warming to wipe the snowball away either. So, I mean, you know, you... Veronica, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great of you to join us. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with coverage of Easel's SLD Summit. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you soon on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.